Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name's Tim. My name's Marshall. How you feeling, Marshall? Good. Feeling good? Yeah. All right. We got air conditioning inside the church, so I'm happy. We've always had air conditioning inside the church. I know, but it was kind of irrelevant for the last eight months until yesterday. You say that like you have a, a particular infinity toward air conditioned air. When it's like... When you get the kind of humidity outside that there is, yes, yes, I am. I'm very inclined towards conditioned air <laughs> of the of the cold variety. Why yeah. not? Yeah, no, I I I'm, I don't do well in the summertime, Tim. I could never, I could never live where you came from. Mm. There's just no way. I can barely handle it here. It's been so long since I've been to Arkansas in the summer. Mm. Part of me wants to. Do it again just for nostalgia's sake. <laughs> just see what it would be like. The only benefit is I'd probably lose weight. Probably lose a lot of weight. Just sweating. You'd probably spend a lot of time inside yeah. and not worry about it. I also might eat a lot of Southern barbecue, so it might like even itself out. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Oh, man. All right, let's talk about Reformation. Mm-hmm. We've made our way through a couple of episodes on Martin Luther. That's right. Who is, without question, a pivotal figure. He is. Principal figure. I would say so. In the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, as we have noted time and time and time again, not the sole figure, by any stretch of the imagination, right? This is the same kind of thing that when you have a, uh, a team win the Super Bowl, People love to talk about how many Super Bowls that quarterback has won. They don't talk about how many Super Bowls the left tackle has won. <laughs> That's true. But do you know where that quarterback would be without his left tackle? On the ground. He would not be hoisting a trophy. <laughs> that is for sure. That's true. Uh, and this isn't just to say that all of these guys are only support roles for Luther. No. So that's where the analogy could go wrong. Yeah. It's also not to say they were all on the same side. Yeah, we which is also a place where the analogy can go wrong. We talked about a few of the guys last week who were on the same side. Yeah. 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 Uh, today we get to somebody who is not really on the same side. I mean, I, I would say a couple of people. Yeah, oh, well. Yeah, there's somebody who's not really on the same side and there's some others who are definitely not. <laughs> so cloud and so much mystery. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. let's start with Zwingli. Okay, let's start with Zwingli. The one thing about Zwingli is he is without a question, hands down, the best name of all the reformers. It's just fun to say. Ulrich Zwingli. Yeah. Like when do you get when do you get a Z in the name? Yeah. You know? All your reform pub friends. I want one of them to name their kid Ulrich. <laughs> Just to show their roots. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so what we mentioned last week, we're, this is what we're doing. We're we're kind of turning the clock back a couple decades, you know, because mm-hmm. we have these varying timelines. So we were in, right. in Germany, which focuses a lot on Luther. And right. now we're moving the lens from Germany to Switzerland. And what's going on in Switzerland is de- is independent initially mm-hmm. from Luther, right? And what's going on in Germany and independent but simultaneous, yes, in some ways. And they they, they are contemporaries, yeah. And they do end up connected, becoming in, in, interconnected, contemporaneous. But compa- oh, nice word. Yeah. So that is that is something to keep in mind. That right. like Zwingli likely would have existed had Luther not. Well. Well, I mean, he did exist. Exist without Martin Luther. It was Zwingli would have been a an influential character in the Reformation of the Church, even if Luther had not existed, is absolutely. my opinion. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So in order to get a, a good handle on this, we need to talk a little bit about some historical context of the Swiss Confederation. So what we now know as Switzerland was not always what it is today. Uh, in the early 1500s, Switzerland was made up of 13 different states known as cantons, 
and they were largely independent. They made their own policies and alliances. And like in Germany, they're all part of the Holy Roman Empire, but that whole thing is a mess. And the Swiss, in particular, were, were very independent. They kind of did their own thing. Um, I mean, the Swiss kind of are known for doing their own thing. Yeah. Kind of that neutrality. Yeah, but you know what? There wasn't a lot of neutrality at this time. There was a lot of war. There was a lot of war. But what the Swiss did is they essentially just gave soldiers to all sides. Right. (laughs) That was their thing. So little little boys grew up. They're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mercenary. Yeah. I'm just going to be hired out to whatever war pays best. Yeah, the highest bidder. And uh, that's what a lot of the Swiss did at the time. Yeah. It's a... An interesting thing for a culture to grab hold of. Yeah, you would fight for maybe the King of France, maybe the Holy Roman Emperor, maybe the Pope would hire you. He needed armies from time to time. And if you were Swiss, that's what you'd do. And you even see um, echoes of this today. When you go to the Vatican City, who's guarding the Pope? Ah. The Swiss Guard. Ah. So they have been the elite soldiers, or they were considered to be the elite soldiers over 500 years ago. And into this context, it's easy to maintain that reputation when you refuse to fight afterward, <laughs> right? All you got to do is show up elite one time mm-hmm. and then go, nah, I proved my point 500 years ago. Yeah. I don't need to do it again. And I think you maintain the status of elite. I think Switzerland, though, still is one of those countries where there's mandatory military training for all mm-hmm. adults. So maybe they could still hold their own and maybe they just don't have to. I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, into this context, Zwingli was born on New Year's Day, 1484, and he was peasant class, but well-off peasant class, similar to Luther. Upper middle. Well, no. but they didn't really have middle. They, no. They didn't. They had upper and lower. Upper, lower. Upper, lower class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they were upper, lower class, well-off farmers. Uh, he got an education as a young boy uh, from his uncle before being sent off to secondary school. He then studied in Vienna, which was the imperial capital, a very prestigious place to be. Um, he, at one point, it seems as though he was expelled from university. He is a bad boy. He's a bit of a bad boy. And then he's readmitted, uh, but he completes his studies in 1506 and he gets his Master of Arts degree. And he decides to become a priest. And wants to return to his hometown to serve. And the interesting thing, and he even mentions this in his writings, is that even at the point where he became a priest, he had received very little actual theological training. But what he had received comes from Erasmus. He studies under Erasmus himself. If you remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about Erasmus and his work in translating the scripture. Mm -hmm. And so Zwingli does spend some time with Erasmus. He's a language expert in particular. He's very good. And that was one of the things that Erasmus had done, even within the Roman Catholic context, was he he did start kind of calling back to the importance of knowing your Greek and Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, you're right. Zwingli gets kind of brought up in that. So he has he has a particularly good handle on the languages in which the Bible was written. Um, But as a young priest, he gets involved in politics. Why not? Why not? Well, it, the, it is the it is the time, <laughs> the it is the time for that, right. right? The church, the church and the politic are mm-hmm. inseparable. Yeah. Well, he he has an issue with this this Swiss mercenary system that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. He's not a fan. He's not a fan of the fact that essentially the Swiss are selling their soul to the highest bidder, right? And you know all these different factions for which you know Swiss men are going to fight the French, the Austrians, the Italians, the Pope, whoever. Um, Zwingli, at this point, is a supporter of the the, the papal cause. He's still pro-Rome mm-hmm. at this point. Um, and actually, he actually serves as a chaplain with Swiss military units while they're on campaign. Right. Um, so he has some military experience, and he's very, very vocal, I guess, about his opinions about how not just how the church should be run because he gets to that later but but swiss society he's very he's he's very proud of his nationality and his heritage and his ethnicity mm-hmm. um but over time he begins taking his religious studies more seriously he gets you know because of these 
this Greek and this Hebrew that he has um, and this influence that he had from Erasmus, um, he really starts digging deeper and he ends up being offered a position uh, which is called, I'm going to butcher this here, uh, the Lutpriestertum, which is just means the people's priest uh, in Zurich in 1519. Mm-hmm. Another great word. Lutpriestertum? Zurich itself. Oh, Zurich. He's Zurich, yeah. Well, you had Zwingli and Zurich. Zurich. So, I mean, yeah. it's easy to remember. Just the Z- you bring the Zs together. Zurich Zwingli of Zurich. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it works. <laughs> yeah. And so, he does something different, though than most priests. He preaches his first sermon on his birthday, January 1st, but rather than base his teaching on like the scheduled mass, he decides he's just going to begin preaching through the gospel of Matthew verse by verse. And blows minds. Oh, yeah. Like people people don't know what to do with this. <laughs> Love it or hate it yeah. aside, mm-hmm. they are just shocked that this is happening. Sure. Like he's just going to teach the Bible to people. And, and like I said, some people love it, some people hate it, but everyone is kind of dumbfounded oh, by yeah. this, the novel concept. <laughs> and, and that's what it is. Like, that's not even a joke. It is yeah. a novel concept at this point. Right, right. To stand up and preach the Bible. Now, admittedly, in some, even some evangelical context, to just preach through a book of the Bible verse by verse might seem like a novel concept as well. <laughs> but all the best churches do, and the best of the best churches... Do it in Matthew. <laughs> for those who don't attend our church, Tim and and I have been preaching through Matthew for like two years now. I think. <laughs> right. We're working our way. We're getting we're getting to the home stretch, Tim. We're almost there. Um, one of his church members said that when Zwingli preached from the Bible like this, it was like being pulled up by the hair of his head. So it's like it's like this like it's this thing. It's like you're being. And what he meant by that is he's being pulled up from this, like, you know, he's laying out on the ground, spiritually dead or whatever, right? And he's he's being lifted up through this process, but it's painful because he's being pulled up by the hair on his head. I like that so much more than what we would use with the stepping on my toes. Okay, yeah. Right? One feels more like a call to action where the other one feels like being stymied and just <laughs> crushed. Right, yeah. Yeah, being pulled up by his hair. Um, but over time... As different themes and questions and issues come up in the text, Zwingli begins to kind of distinguish himself from others mm-hmm. and from the standard Roman Catholic Catholic teaching of the day, right? And this just happens as you work through the text, things come up, right? A lot of people think that this whole like idea of preaching verse by verse, you know, you're going to get the same thing week in and week out, but that's not really it. There's a diversity of themes within God's word, even within individual books and right. so he starts to he starts to do all the things that, ever, that luther did that the waldensians did that the who sites it's the same stuff yeah we were we were talking about this the other day in my office and i mentioned that i was waiting on the moment to drop it and i think this is the moment to drop it mm-hmm. okay um there is a common theme among all of these people that step away from the church and start a new revolution. The common theme is that they were inspired to that change by reading the Bible. It yep. is it, it is not even up for debate. Right? Like you and I were watching uh the Reformation as a history told through uh the interpretation of a Catholic priest. Yeah. And he had all of these philosophical undertones. Right. Schools of varying philosophies that led to, you know, their differentiations and those kinds of things. Nothing that he mentioned is written about by any of the reformers. Yeah. So basically they said, this is our problem. And he said, no, that's not your problem. I'll tell you what your problem was. Your problem is this. And they said, no, no, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I came here to order. Stop bringing me that. Yeah. Right. The difference is they've read the Bible, period. Yep. Right? And, and, and the reason I've been holding on to that a little bit, that's a tough thing. That's a tough thing. And so when we look at the way the Catholic Church was and in many ways has continued to be, 
the shelving of the Bible in the fullness of its texts and submission to its teachings instead of the church's tradition cannot be ignored. Yeah. That is the principal difference. Yeah. And as we've said over and over again, you can you can go back through the episodes, please go back through the episodes. All of the episodes where we've talked about these people who have raised up and been neo-reformers and now reformers. Every time we said they got a copy of the Bible in their own language. Mm-hmm. And they looked at what the church was doing and they said, "No. This there's nothing about this that's right." I personally have friends who were die-hard Catholics who started reading their Bibles, went to their priests, and said, man, I got questions, genuine questions, and were turned away and told to accept the teachings of the church and not able to answer genuine biblical questions. This Reformation is the exact same, one at a global scale and one at a personal scale, right? It is what has happened historically. It will continue to happen at personal levels, even even to today. It is just the common thread. Yeah, I would. I would. Hey, Dom, inc- if you're listening, love you, man. I would. I would encourage people who are listening, who have friends and family members who are in the Roman Catholic Church. One of the great ways to um, witness to them, or just to 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 try and lead them towards the gospel is not necessarily even to get into these debates right over doctrine just do a bible study with them and it doesn't have to be yeah. through and it, and, and it doesn't have to be some kind of alpha study or whatever kind of christianity 101 just go through a book of the bible right just read it with them right and the real benefit to that is the catholic church has always and continues to claim the bible as the authoritative word of god right it puts the teachings of the church on par yeah. But that they claim that it is a common claim that you can say, hey, this is one thing that we both agree on. Let's both love this together. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah. And and say, you know, rather than rather than, you know, me walking you through a book that's coming from my perspective or, or trying to criticize, you know, your church's perspective. Let's just let's just find that common ground. The Bible. Right. Mm-hmm. We both believe that the Bible is God's word. Let's read that together. And that will be an effective strategy. Um, yeah, so the things he's calling out, moral corruption of the clergy, rejected the veneration of the saints. He also was just kind of like, look, there's all these stories circulating around these guys and girls. Uh, let's let's try to distinguish what is true and what is obviously fictional about right. them, right? right? Like there are things worth remembering and noting as meaningful achievements that these people did and then there's stuff that's just obviously nonsense mm-hmm. right like saint nicholas like the pickled children yeah that one's an obvious one <laughs> but then there are then there are these <laughs> claims again shameless plug go listen to the christmas episode <laughs> go listen to our Christ- yeah it's right um yeah i mean he questions whether the the institution of the church truly has the power to remove someone's salvation through excommunication right right and and when the roman church ends up sending representatives to come to zurich and sell indulgences to raise fund for saint peter's which is something that ticked luther off um essentially zwingli convinces the city council of zurich to just refuse to let them in yeah like you know like we're here we, the pope sent us to go sell indulgences like we're going to help people's eternal states and, and raise funds for our new church and the city council's like, no, you're not. Right. We'll see you later. Yeah. Like, we're not going to let you into town, which is crazy. Right, because this is the Catholic Church. Yeah. You don't say no to them. Right. And so, so one of the things that you're going to see happening here is that these church movements are going to become very tied to their cities. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? Very much so. And, and the city you live in worships according to their reformer. Yes. In a lot of ways. That's true. Right? And and usually it's not it's not always just a city. There's, you know, regions, mm-hmm. right? Lutheranism isn't really state. tied to a city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in right. the same way that Zwinglianism would be Zurich. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh but the the reason for this is because these reformers 
in their teaching and raising up of these churches are able to not only convince the people of their local group, but the political leaders. And not only do they turn back the church, but eventually they just declare themselves reform, Mm -hmm. right? Which is, at this point in time, the same as a province or a state standing up to their union and saying, we're independent, right? Because you have that overlap of the church and the politics and and what little bit of grasp the church had on that, they're like, no, you don't anymore. You're done. Mm. And that is a declaration of war. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> Zwingli... <laughs> He gets into some conflicts. One of the one of the first major conflicts that he does personally, because this whole turning away the people selling indulgences was technically the city council, but something he does is uh, during Lent, mm-hmm. he and a few of his buddies eat sausages on on purpose. Tim, yeah, they ate sausages on purpose during Lent. I mean, who the gall? <laughs> the way the story plays out. Is that it's called the affair of the he, sausages? By the way, he serves everyone, but himself abstains. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. And that. then he goes the next day and preaches a sermon entitled "On the Choice and Freedom of Foods." There you go. Nice. And declares Lent unbiblical, not unhelpful, but unbi- unbiblical. Right. Right. And this is another thing that I think is is going to, as we work through these reformers, going to become more and more helpful. A lot of the reformers really like some of the Catholic traditions, Mm -hmm. and they find them helpful and they see the value in them. I think we in the Baptist world sort of live in this, if it looks Catholic, run. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, for sure. Some of some of us more than others. Right. <laughs> right, Marshall. That's right. And uh it's true. And so so there are there are Baptist groups that would say, We don't do Advent. I would never do Lent. Mm. It's Catholic. Right. And Catholic equals wrong. Right. Right? Yeah. And we're going to get into groups even today that get more into that. Mm-hmm. He's not coming at it to say these things are all evil. Right? He's like, no, you have a choice. It's not biblical, but it's not necessarily wrong. Mm-hmm. And just like we said with a lot of the appearances of Catholicism that survive in Luther's church, those things are going to survive in Zwingli's church to a degree as well. Yeah. Yeah, and so the the bishop is upset with Zwingli, uh, mm-hmm. but Zwingli just kind of keeps pushing the envelope. He then writes a letter to the bishop asking him to remove the requirement for celibacy among the priests. Yeah. Um, he had a secret motive because he had already married a widow a few months before that, and she was already pregnant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he has a secret marriage. She's about to have a baby. And he's like, hey, you know what would be really cool? If you would okay that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, so, I mean... There are a series of these like meetings where they kind of face down against each other. Like, you know, they're, they're going to have these debates about whether or not what Zwingli is teaching is in line with the church and is he a heretic or not. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a, a meeting set up and this guy named Johannes Fabri comes and he's a representative of the bishop. And when the meeting takes place, Zwingli kind of lays out some theological issues that he wants to discuss, but the church representative, he refuses to address them. And his reasoning is that he says he's forbidden to discuss what he calls high theology in front of lay people. Right. Which just proves Zwingli's point. He's like, he's saying, you know, there's all these, you guys are off. Like there theologically, there's all these issues and like people need to know that these things are wrong. Mm-hmm. And the church representative says, I'm not allowed to talk about theology in front of lay people. And he's like, yeah, that's the point. That's why we're in this mess is because you guys don't communicate theology properly to lay people. And that's what I'm trying to fix. Right. It's kind of like when people 
say that it always bothers me when I hear people say to people, now, I don't, I'm sorry to be so technical, but because what you're saying to that person is, I'm sorry that you're not smart enough to understand what I'm about to say, but I don't know how else to describe it at your level. Um, but those those notions, and, and here's, here's where I'm going to push back, not only on the people who say that, but the people who accept that. Laity, the congregation, are not lesser of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Churches are full of doctors, lawyers, engineers, plumbers, electricians, mm-hmm. those who are quite skilled and quite intelligent in their fields yeah, and have the capacity to be theologically intelligent. Exactly. And should be. And should be. Especially, I'm, I'm going to pick on men, not because they have a greater degree of responsibility in my mind toward understanding the things of God, but because men like to nerd out on their hobbies. Right. <laughs> and and if a man is into flying kites, he is going to know by heart the history of kites, the thousands of materials that they can be made of, the strings, the tensions, the pros and the cons of all of those kinds of things because men like to nerd out on their hobbies. Right. We have the capacity. We just choose not to apply it in this way. And then the pastor gets up and uses the word propitiation and people that have been in the church for 60 years go, I wish he would just stop treating us like a seminary. <laughs> right? We have the opportunity to learn these things. We just need to apply ourselves in them. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So Zwingli, Zwingli goes further than Luther does in certain things. Luther is very much, if it's against the Bible, I'm not for it. Zwingli is more of a, if it's not in the Bible, I'm not for it. More so. Not, he doesn't go as far as others later will. But he, um, essentially, they, he and his friend, uh, another pastor in, in Zurich, Leo Judd, they publicly call for all the statues of saints and all the icons in the churches in Zurich to be removed. Which is interesting because now in Zurich, there's a massive statue of Zwingli. <laughs> Yeah, what would he say about that? And in one arm, he has the Bible. Yeah. And in the other arm, he has a sword. Oh, man. That's so cool. Yeah, when I when I was looking at that, I was thinking, this is what Marshall wants. Yeah, that's what... <laughs> this is this is the memorandum, the memorial that Marshall wants to be acknowledged by. <laughs> oh, you know me too well, Tim. I'm not even going to argue with that. That sounds awesome. Um, sorry, everyone who's listening, look, I don't... I don't think anyone's going to make statues of me one day but if they did yeah sword in a bible is pretty good um okay so over the next few years things slowly begin to change in zurich you're starting to see certain things change the the clergy the the pastors the the priests or whatever are not wearing robes anymore you're not seeing this veneration of relics or statues on certain you know feast days they're not bringing out holy relics of various saints and and doing all these weird traditions they're not doing that stuff anymore and communion is served to people who are sitting at tables and it's being done with wooden plates and wooden cups mm-hmm. right because Zwingli is going to emphasize the communal aspect of what the Lord's Supper represents. And it's not a mm-hmm. holy man making something into a different substance and then bestowing it on those who are only those who are deserving. Right. But it's everyone together participating collectively. Yeah. One thing that Zwingli does that changes the way that we do church today directly, maybe across the board. Um, church, the communion had been the common reason for gathering right. for worship mm-hmm. up until the Reformation, right? In part for negative reasons. And those negative reasons being it was the church's way of commanding, you know, if you don't hear me out, don't follow, then you're not going to get your grace for the week. And you need your grace for the week because who knows what's going to happen this week. Right, right. Right? Uh, in the Reformation, that is going to continue as a theme, right? We gather around communion. That's common. That's what we understand. And yeah. and Zwingli says, no, there's a, there's a bit of a problem with biblical literacy. 
Yeah. Right. That's his push. That's his thing. Biblical literacy is an issue. And we are in the state that we're in because the people have not been afforded the opportunity to learn the word of God. So what they need most is the preaching of the word. Yeah. Yeah. They need the preaching of the word more than anything else. And and today in our churches, that Zwinglian attitude where the preaching of the word is the primary reason for gathering. Mm hmm persists yeah right other traditions will say no we we need the preaching of the word but we also need the weekly communion yeah. the English said ah, we don't need to do it every week yeah luther Lu- so lutheran churches the the service is still centered around mm-hmm. communion there is preaching and you're going to get varying degrees of quality depending on which lutheran church you're at but um but yeah so what zwingli does in kind of this this early reformed movement um is yeah, make preaching the center the center of the the worship service, and I think from a biblical standpoint that's fair. When you read about the work of the apostles traveling from place to place, you you don't read these continual accounts. Like you assume that there is the taking of the Lord's Supper that is mm-hmm. happening. It's not that that's being neglected, but the primary right. thing they're doing is teaching and preaching. Right, that's the thing that is highlighted. Yeah, and yep. it's I think it's highlighted for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Within so so Zwingli has a, a a group of very keen young men who are who are all on board with what he's all about, but there are some of them who say it's not enough. Oh yeah, and they want to go further. They right. want to turn this thing up to eleven. They're like, look, Zwingli, I know that you're like you're poking the Pope in the eye here, but that we can do more. We got to go further. This isn't enough. Right, and. So there's a group of these young men who begin to kind of break away and kind of start their own little thing within Zurich. And this group is led initially by a guy named Conrad Grable. And the movement that they would begin would would come to be known as the Anabaptist movement. They were initially called radical reformers, Mm -hmm. but then they become the Anabaptist. We know them kind of more generically today as the Mennonites. Although that's not entirely accurate because the Mennonites are a different sect that started in a different area. But right. So when you think when, when I say the word Mennonite, that's Anabaptist. That's what you're thinking. That's what people, at least around here, are going to be thinking. Yeah, about. so the Anabaptist is a bigger tradition. Anabaptist is an umbrella term. Sure. Right? Um, and, and Conrad Grable, yeah, he's a part of this. Also was present at the sausage lunch. He was. Yeah. Uh, but this this umbrella term births a number of traditions that are still practicing today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the Mennonites, yep. as you mentioned. The Amish. Yep. Uh, German Baptists. Yep. The uh, Hutterites. Huterite? H- Hutterite? I think it's Hutterites, yeah. Uh, the Church of the Brethren. Yep. So churches, Brethren yeah. Churches are quite a movement in yeah, There's a lot around Ontario. here. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. around here. And uh, the Bruderhof movement. Okay. So all of these all of these exist within the umbrella of the Anabaptist. Yeah. Yeah. And and so the the main the main dividing point there there, there ended up being more, but the, the initial one, the initial point of degree of disagreement between Conrad Grable and Zwingli was in regards to baptism. Essentially, the Anabaptists um, believed in believer's baptism, uh, baptism at profession of faith rather than infant baptism. And this is technically, it's not, at the time anyways, it was not merely a theological matter, it was a political one. Right. That's right. something that in our in our modern context we can lose sight of. Because when if you were born as a baby in Christian lands, you were baptized, yep. period. And those records in that event was you, not only you being welcomed into the church, to the, the visible church, mm-hmm. but it was also you being welcomed into society yeah. as, as a citizen of whatever kingdom it was that you were being born into. And we, we've said this before, but baptismal records are still in some areas akin to... Uh, your birth certificate. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, like I, I, I'll I'll mention again just for just for the sake of it because it's been a while. But like when I've done genealogical research, once you get back a certain uh, amount of years, a couple centuries, it's easier to find baptism dates than birth dates, because mm. that is when you are, you become you, officially. Yeah. In in, in European society, so that so that so to again to argue against infant baptism is more than a the, it is a theological issue, but it's more than that. Um, and so what ends up happening is Zwingli is not down with this. Um, and neither is the, the city council. Um, this is kind of a step too far from them. And so those who decide not to baptize their babies end up being sometimes arrested or fined. And they're given an ultimatum yeah. eventually. Yeah, if you continue to refuse to baptize your children, you need to leave the city. Mm-hmm. And if you baptize, or if you, what they would say, rebaptize anyone, um, you could be killed. It'd be punishable by death. Right. So, so they receive the the ultimatum from the government. Mm-hmm. You have to baptize your children, or else. Mm-hmm. They let that edict run until the night before it is supposed to actually come into effect. They were mm-hmm. given some runway. They let that runway run out. They all meet together at uh, one particular home, which is still standing today, by the way. Oh, interesting. Uh, They meet together at a particular home. They pray about it. They search the scripture. They go out into the courtyard, find a fountain, and baptize each other. Yeah, that's bold. And and this is where the state gives them the name, the Anabaptists, the rebaptizers. Right. A name that they would universally denounce. Sure. They would say we are not rebaptized. Our first baptisms were illegitimate. Right. It was a bath. It wasn't anything spiritual. It wasn't even a bath. It was a sprinkle. Yeah, it was a shower. And and so they would they would only see themselves as the baptized. Right. Not the Anabaptists. Right. But they become an enemy of the state. They do. Not just an enemy of so whereas you have Zwingli and Luther who in their reform are enemies of the church, the Catholic church. Right. We have to start distinguishing that now. Yeah. The Roman Catholic church, mm-hmm. which at this point is not representing the church in such a way as that you would say it is the body of Christ acting under the head of Christ. Right. So they are acting, they are enemies of the Roman Catholic church, but now they are also enemies of the Protestant state. Yeah. So this is why they're considered radical reformers. Mm-hmm. Right, they are they are on the outside of everything going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. So, so many of them flee, um, and it it's worth noting. So Zwingli Zwingli wasn't technically part of the decision making process to execute Anabaptists, but he certainly didn't say anything against it. Mm-hmm. Right, same with Luther. Yeah. Um, so there was secular authorities that would carry out these executions, but even in Protestant region, I mean, the Roman Catholics hated the Anabaptists too. I mean, they were equally hated by by the reformers and and um, and the Roman Catholic Church. Right, because we're going to move on from Zwingli really quickly. Like this is the move on. Oh yeah, from Zwingli. Like yeah. he 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 comes to Zurich. He has these notions. He sets into motion. He has his meeting with Luther. Luther's like. I hate this guy. <laughs> he meets with him and he's like... Zwingli loves Luther and Luther right. hates Zwingli. And, and, and this is not unreasonable because the differences they're going to have... We talked about the differences of presence before. Right. We'll, we'll get deep into that with Calvin because that'll be sort of like the tying of the bow of all of the discussions sure. okay. of presence. Okay. So they, uh, they're both against transubstantiation. Luther says there's presence, whatever presence might mean. Real presence. Real presence. Whatever that means. Uh, and, and he doesn't even really define it, right? <laughs> but real presence. Uh, and Zwingli says, no, nah, it's just symbolic. Mm-hmm. But you know what? God is omnipresent. I don't think Jesus is omnipresent because he's a physical body sitting at the right hand of the Father, and that just seems illogical. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if that presence means something, whatever. Right. Whereas the other one's like, no, if it's not that, then Christ isn't present at all. And it's not. So when someone holds the more extreme view, 
they kind of got to cling to that more. And so that's where Luther is like not having Zwingli. Zwingli's like, I can take or leave what he's teaching, whatever. They get together, and apparently Luther's like, you know what? He's not such a bad guy after all. I, I, mean, I still don't agree with him, but I don't hate him. <laughs> he leaves, and as time does, that distance. Right? There's something about being face-to-face with a person mm. that humanizes their concepts and everything. Sure. They leave, and uh, after a while, Martin's like, yeah, you know what? I think I do kind of hate him. <laughs> and uh, and even says out loud, we w- we're not going to see him in heaven, uh, based on some of those those differences. But right, right. he goes back into the field to be a uh, he Zwingli goes back in the field to work with the soldiers mm-hmm. as a chaplain, mm-hmm. and dies at a very young age. On yeah, the field. yeah. So w- what ends up happening is there's there's conflict between the the Swiss regions that had become Protestant and those who were Catholic. And so in the Catholic regions, they were still executing reformers. So what the Protestant, some of the Protestant regions decided to do was create a food blockade. So they were going to stop trade from entering into some of these mountainous regions. And in response, war was declared. Right. And, and, and Zwingli finds himself fighting in a battle where Zurich was uh, outnumbered. And outgunned, mm-hmm. and he dies in battle right. as a as a relatively as a relatively young man. And that's where we move on into this Anabaptist movement, mm-hmm. forgetting Zwingli, and that's why Zwingli isn't as remembered as some of the other reformers, mm. uh, because he he doesn't stick around and live a long life and write over and over and over again the way that some of the others do. Yeah, um, yeah, and he will be ultimately as far as kind of the the non-Lutheran reformed world, he will soon be replaced by someone who is much more remembered. And we'll talk about him in a couple episodes, but, but you're right. Let's, 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 we can talk a little bit more about the, the Anabaptists, I think, Mm -hmm. because there's an interesting story with this, this Anabaptist movement. Grable himself, um, he's in prison for a while. He flees. He ends up dying at a young age as well. Not He's not executed, although some of his friends are. Um, but there's multiple kind of different types of Anabaptist movements that are cropping up around Europe. And the, the question is, you know, is it all kind of from one thing? Like, was it con- all Conrad Grable and his little group that influenced these other people in different spots? Or were these things also happening independently and just happen to have these common identities. And there's, I mean, church historians and theologians and whatnot have argued mm-hmm. over that for a long time, and we can't really settle that. But but yeah, but that's where you get these different groups, right? Like that we already mentioned, the Hutterites. Um, you know, J- Jacob Hutter was burned at the stake mm-hmm. in 1536. You had um, Menno Simons, who was originally a Catholic priest and then became an Anabaptist. That's where we get the word Mennonite from, is from his first name, Menno. Um, sorry. Yeah, Min- Minosim is just as a, an aside. Yeah, I read once. Uh, I was reading about church discipline, mm. and he was so into the concept of church discipline that he refused to marry a couple unless they first vowed that they would turn the other in to the church if they knew of hidden sin. And would participate in whatever shunning was necessary should that sin not be repented of. <laughs> yeah. So that's so hardcore. There's something so there's something to be said because a lot of our listeners are probably Baptists and they're thinking, Well, you know, we we got we got so much in common with these Anabaptists. Yeah. The, uh, yes, but technically no. Um so yes, adult baptism, the baptism of believers is something that that you know our Baptist tradition and the Anabaptists do share in common, mm-hmm. um, but these t- some of these things like like what you just mentioned these very strict rules on church discipline and holy living, like we're just well above and beyond what Scripture even calls for. Right? Are 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 common? Maybe not amongst some of the more modern liberal variations of, of Anabaptists. Yeah. But, but throughout history have been, have been kind of a staple of what it means. Like they're, they are just looking for a reason to kick you out. Um, and, and to yeah. be shunned from an Anabaptist church is very much to be condemned for eternity. Like yeah. That and, is I, their... and I think the the commonality of the, the 
adult baptism being a part of the name of the church makes it sound uh, there there are even those who would recommend that this is where the baptist movement comes from it, it's not we'll it's see not. we'll see that later on it's it's a rebellion against a rebellion in england yeah um so so that's that's not the case uh that were kind of the same like man the anabaptists like you said can be all over the place from really socially strict mm-hmm. the amish old order mennonite those kinds of things yeah uh that we're really familiar with uh, all the way to the meeting house, the meeting house, which is far more liberal, um, far more liberal and equally Anabaptist. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so there are there are distinctives between us. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, um, and, and shifting distinctives. Yeah, I would say that's right. A, that's another thing. Yeah. Anabaptists today uh, do not hold to this same thing that was birthed with Conrad Grable of we only do what's in the Bible yeah, and holding that to an absolute authority, right? There are Anabaptist today. Theologians talk all the time about the concept of the authority of scripture is not a part of Anabaptism. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, through conversations I've had, even with, even with friends who are part of uh, Anabaptist churches here locally, um, they definitely view the authority of scripture very differently. Right. Than we would or mm-hmm. even or even like than other evangelical like than Pentecostals would or or other evangelical denominations would. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's important to note because now we're starting to talk about our own, which is a very broad term. I understand our listenership covers a, a pretty broad range, but still narrowed. It's sure, still very sure. niche, uh, but it is sort of where our history breaks out and, and really starts taking off. But to argue that what was a Lutheran is what is now a Lutheran is not a right argument. Right, right. To argue what was an Anabaptist is now an Anabaptist is not a right argument. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, a couple other distinctives uh, that are particular to the Anabaptist tradition. Uh, pacifism. Oh, man, this, this is such a hard one mm-hmm. because, as we've mentioned— there are two authorities in their world, the church and the state. They have rebelled against both. Mm. Neither one of them have any problem with the death penalty. Yeah. And they hold to such a pacifism that it just is their demise. There's, if you Google Anabaptist, it doesn't matter. You, you go to 10 websites, nine of them are going to have the same picture. Mm-hmm. The picture of Dirk Willem, right? And Dirk Willem is being is an Anabaptist. He's being pursued by someone who is going to kill him for being an Anabaptist. And the man who's chasing him falls through the ice in the pond that he's running from. Dirk Willem stops his fleeing, rescues the man who immediately puts him in chains and has him burned at the stake. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, these these people are killed by the Reformed churches and the Catholic churches alike mm-hmm. in mass. Yep. And one of the, burning at the stake is something that has been very common. It remains common. Drowning becomes really common. Uh, even noted by some of those who will bring about the execution, it will become colloquially known as the third baptism yeah. as a way of mocking them, mm-hmm. uh, saying to them, you prefer submersion? Let's see how you like it now. Mm-hmm. And it is their pacifism is understandable from Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way that they hold to it at ultimate cost is is crazy it, it's moving mm. yeah it's it's commendable it also causes them to spend a lot of time fleeing yeah oh well and that's that's why we have so many here these communities here yeah in north right. america right yeah, because they sure. will they will be chased into western europe mm-hmm. and western europe will eventually change hands 
mm-hmm. and also become a religious state, and then they have nowhere else to go. Yeah. And so we do have a lot of them here because they were fleeing constantly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the whole, the pacifism and non-resistance thing, it's, yeah, we've had we've had conversations about it before. I, I, yeah, I'm more of a non-retaliation rather than a non-resistance, but that's maybe splitting hairs. Um, also, another thing is there, this whole separation of like, the the church from the world they take to a really extreme degree i mean we see echoes of that even in kind of these closed communities but in their original context right christians were not allowed to serve as magistrates or in any kind of government form in fact i've even heard a particular anabaptist preacher in our region of note who um, made comments along the lines of he wouldn't he wouldn't want police officers in his church because they might have to use force. Mm-hmm. Recent news would show maybe there was other reasons he didn't want police officers in his <laughs> church, but <laughs> but I won't. I, that's yeah, that's whatever. But but this idea of like this this distancing from even situations that might put you in a place where you have to exercise the threat of violence, right? Right. Which I guess is you know they're 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 being consistent in that, right? Like they're saying like. Well, I wouldn't serve in a role that might require me to to exercise some kind of physical punishment towards someone else. And so what that does though is it just kind of it it creates kind of these insular insular communities that we've seen um you know even today, right? Where you can go 20 minutes down the road and there's people from some of these communities that like they can barely speak English. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. And they've not only it's not just they were born here they're like fifth sixth seventh their ancestors have been in canada longer than mine have right and yet you know it's it's very very insular so it's it's an interesting it's an interesting kind of strain of 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 the the christian church and and many anabaptists wouldn't even see themselves as protestants there's there's some who would say no you've got you know you got the roman catholics you got the orthodox you got the protestants and then anabaptists were our own thing yeah separate from all of that but but anyways, it's it's uh, it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting story. And it's a tragic story because of how many, like you said, how many were killed, how many, how often they had to flee, and how far ultimately they had to flee in order to finally find a right. measure of peace. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That is Vingley and the Anabaptists. Anything else you want to throw in before we wrap it up? No, I don't think so. I think uh, no, I think we. Time next week to turn the clock back again a couple decades yeah, and start this whole thing again in another place because yeah, this is a bit of the leapfrogging that we yeah. have to do because all of these things are going on mm-hmm. at the same time, mm-hmm. and so we will pick back up on the island, England. That's next right. Week. Yeah. All right. English Reformation is really interesting. Jolly old England. Yeah, me too. Looking forward to it. Until then, thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada, and is produced by Alex Walker. Take care. Bye.